This is Deb Donig with Technically Human, a podcast about ethics and technology, where I ask what it means to be human in the age of tech. Each week, I interview industry leaders, thinkers, writers, and technologists, and I ask them about how they understand the relationship between humans and the technologies we create. We discuss how we can build a better vision for technology, one that represents the best of our human values. My guest today is Timothy Morton. Dr. Timothy Morton is the Rita Shea Guffey Chair in English at Rice University. They have collaborated with Lori Anderson, Bjork, Jennifer Walsh, Ruffenhilder and a daughter or shoplifter, Sabrina Scott, Adam McKay, Jeff Bridges, Justin Gariglia, Olafur Eliasson, and Pharrell Williams. Morton co-wrote and appears in Living in the Future's Past, a 2018 film about global warming with Jeff Bridges. They are the author of the libretto for the opera Time, Time, Time by Jennifer Walsh. Morton has written multiple critical works of eco-criticism. His work, which has been translated into 10 languages, includes All Art is Ecological, published by Penguin in 2021, Spacecraft, published by Bloomsbury in 2021, Being Ecological, published by Penguin in 2018, Humankind, Solidarity with Non-Human People, published by Verso in 2017, and Dark Ecology, for a Logic of Future Coexistence, published by Columbia in 2016. Morton is the author of a number of other critical works in the field, including 250 essays on philosophy, ecology, literature, music, art, architecture, design, and food. Hi, Tim. Hi. Tim, I don't think that before we scheduled this podcast, you knew me, but I certainly knew, or at least knew of you for quite some time since I was an English major undergraduate student at UC Davis. And at the time you were teaching in the English department. If I have the timeline right, I was there right around the time that you would have been writing one of your landmark books, Ecology Without Nature, a foundational work that argues that environmental thinking requires us to reimagine the very image of nature itself. The book has been hugely influential in environmental thought. What led you to write that book? Gosh, that's a very, very big story, actually, because, you know, it took me 12 years to figure out how to say what I really wanted to say in a way that would get the book accepted by the kind of authority figures that are part of university kind of scale publishing. And that's because when I started off doing my PhD, a lot of environmental writing in the humanities was, and I'm going to say something now, and I hope people don't think it's too rude, a, a bit conservative or even reactionary. Quite a lot of it was a kind of Trojan horse for avoiding the issues that we learn about in theory class, aka thinking about gender and race and, and issues that I consider to be pivotal to working with any kind of text at all, whether it be literature or music or whatever. And so it took me a long time to figure out how to say what I wanted to say. And I remember I had a post-it note in that moment on my laptop that just said, just tell people what you think. Because the other issue was, I was just like this really low self-esteem, very crabby kind of scholar person at the time who was mostly trained in like being right, you know, and slowly but surely I gravitated through that book and the subsequent books into being interesting. And I, I know it sounds less good than being right, but being right in a funny way is like medieval and being interesting is more like where we're at, you know. And lo and behold, you know, when I published that book, I actually got death threats and I got stalked and I had to do police reports and you wouldn't believe it, right? And some people actually thought that what that book meant was that Tim Morton doesn't believe that coral is is real because they were holding on to this idea of nature. Really, it's a big, complicated thought to get out. And that was my first try at trying to get that thought out. What do you think that they were so angry at? What was it specifically that you said that ignited that kind of response? I'm a fan of therapy. I've been in therapy for 24 years. I've been with the same therapist for 24 years. Goodness knows why. Oh, because he's great. That's why. And we do this sort of Zoom therapy since the actually the early 2010s because he lives in Boulder. 
and I live in Houston, Texas. And it seems to me from learning about that world that taking away somebody's fantasy can be actually more painful than taking away their reality, aka removing people's way of explaining why they know or think or believe certain things can actually be quite, quite intense for people, right? And what people think is that there's this thing called nature and they invest a lot of energy in it. But I think it's actually a, quite a toxic concept because in order for something to be natural, there has to be stuff that's not natural. It's, it's what we call normative, right? Therefore, it means that some thoughts or actions or some kinds of beings are not natural. And that doesn't, that doesn't work for me at all. And so also it means kind of like that nature, whatever it is, is always this thing that's never completely here. It's kind of under my skin in my DNA, or it's kind of in the mountains, or it's kind of in my, in my past or whatever. And so that doesn't seem to fit very well with a truly ecological way of thinking about things. Yeah. And this is, uh, I think, a part of a, a larger development in the humanities broadly and in li English literature, specifically called eco-criticism. At UCLA, where I did my doctorate, I studied with Liz DeLugri and later on Ursula Heise and Alison Carruth, all of whom joined a little bit after I started the doctorate. And there's a large branch of humanists right now, specifically literary humanists, who are really examining this dichotomy that we as humans build between us on the one hand and everything that is human and everything that is culture. And on the other hand, everything that is natural, everything that is that we have separated ourselves from in order to become truly human. I have a question. I mean, I have a lot of questions about this, but I, I was in my mind as you were talking, going through the list of past episodes on the series. And I think you might be the first professor of English literature I've had on the show. So maybe it's worth asking you a question that I get asked all the time as a professor of English literature working on ethical technology. Why are literary scholars so well-equipped or positioned to think about problems of science, technology, the environment? Why has this become a specific contention, specific space in English literature? Or are we specifically well-placed to do this kind of work? What's the link between literary scholarship, studies of poems, fictions, worlds that don't exist, and the real world in the context of the environment and tech? Well, this is my chance to do an ad for the humanities, of course, and I'm not going to pass it up. Humanities is the STEM. Let's just get that out of the way. Um, when you study science, you're studying how to make facts that are true in whatever scientific discipline you're in, right? So since about 1760 in white Western philosophy, a fact is an interpretation of patterns and data, and you interpret the patterns in the data, it's scientific data having to do with measurement and velocity and temperature and whatever, and you correlate them with other uh, patterns, and the nature biology says, yeah, that's biology true, for now, so we're going to publish your piece, right? That's that's what you learn as a scientist. You learn how to have science facts. Humanities is how do you have a fact at all, right? Like so, humanities data could be velocity or temperature. It could be it reminds me of my grandmother. It could be I always feel triggered when I read this word. It could be so many different things, right? Because data is just the Latin for the things that are given. Yeah, some things that that, that are given to us are things that we think of as scientific, but there's loads of other things that, that aren't, right? They had this right in the Middle Ages, right? They had this thing called the trivium, which means three-legged stool. It's three topics, right? And you, do, and you would do this first. And basically, it's humanities, right? You, you learn how to make meaning, which is grammar. Then you learn how to make meaning that's coherent or true or whatever, and, and, and that's logic. And then you learn how to convey that to yourself and other people, and that's rhetoric. And that's humanities. Humanities is the stem. I used to, in the first season of the podcast, have a weekly segment of each interview that I called Take Your Humanities Classes Seriously. And it was this kind of ad about the significance of really thinking through particularly the large problems that we're dealing with right now in our contemporary culture, problems so magnificent that they really can't be solved by any one discipline or any one form of training, COVID, for example, which is certainly a technological problem and a medical problem, but also a problem of psychology. It is a problem 
problem of culture. It is a problem of inequity. And so I think that what you're saying here really ties into the scope of work that we're also in. I also think it's really important to point out that what we do as literary scholars is we look at the purview of imagination. And as we move through the world, we think through the relationship that we have to the world through the kind of speculative understandings, the stories that we are told, and the kinds of frameworks that that we have available to us to, to think through those things. I'm curious what you think the frameworks that you bring and that the frameworks that the humanities broadly brings to the study of the environment specifically, to thinking about scientific thought broadly. You really said something very beautiful there, which is this emphasis on the imagination, which I take to be, if you were to translate it into my way of, of talking, it's like humanities and arts allow the future to be different than the past. They allow for the possibility that things might be different, and we certainly need things to be a little bit different than they have been if we're going to succeed in not just dying and letting a whole load of species go extinct in the next 10 years. They should put you and me in the news conferences, I think, because they put scientists in, you see, and the scientists are they're right, but the mode in which they talk, unfortunately, because they didn't take enough classes with you, is a belief mode, right, that is very similar to a certain kind of religion. There's not just facts, there's ways of having them, right? Like, there's not just hammers, there's ways of holding the hammer. There's not just wine, there's like a way of pouring it and drinking it so it tastes nice, right? And so ideas always have a way of having them, and there are beliefs about belief, and, you know, the one of the popular ones is, you know, Belief means hold on really, really tight. And the other one could be, you know, belief means you know, tr trusting. That's much more science-y, actually, because true in science is statistical, right? Like a few years ago, 97% of people, scientists thought global warming was caused by humans. That's better than saying, it is caused by humans, damn it. And if you don't agree with me, I'm going to torture you until you do, right? And so in that news conference, the scientist is a little bit thrown back on, please believe me, please believe me. And whoever is in the audience who is not wanting to do that will be like, hmm, you know, I think I'm not going to do that, actually. So there has to be a different way of talking to people. The other thing that's tricky is that scientists don't realize that they're caught up in a kind of cultural discourse here where basically what we do right now is we traumatize ourselves about, for example, global warming data on page one, right? Like five years from now, 200,000 X degrees. And then in the middle of the paper, so that makes you feel stupid, right? And then in the middle of the paper, there's an editorial that says, basically, everything you're doing is wrong. You're evil. And stupid and evil is not a good place to launch any kind of progressive politics. It's very disempowering to feel stupid and evil. And kind of the way that we've been talking to ourselves about the environment has hoovered up all the people who are faithful, all the religion people like me who kind of believe something about how important it is to, to do this stuff. But we need seven and whatever percent billion people on board with this project, right? We don't just need people who think it's cool or good or, or, or righteous to do this stuff. We need everybody to be on board with it. And so what do we do, right? And so somehow working with people who know what facts are and how to make them, aka people who study these crazy Rorschach things called poems or novels or whatever, and just like figure out what a fact really is, might actually be much better at working with people. Quite a lot of me doesn't want to ever convince people or make people feel stupid anymore. Quite a lot of me wants to make people feel like there's science-y inside, you know, like they have a kind of science feeling without needing the money or the privilege or the whatever to get a science degree. And this science feeling is more important than any factoids about global warming for me because it's a form of caring about stuff that you can't necessarily see or or, or or, or reach out to it's called coronavirus right like 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 just in the last year we've all had this incredible upgrade i think around the world in terms of thinking about people who we might not meet because we don't want to give them the virus and people in the future who we might not know because we don't want to give them the virus and that's a more kind of quote-unquote scientific way of imagining social space right and so i feel like my job as a human humanity scholar is like i'm trying to create like the sofa in which the idea makes 
makes sense, right? Like I'm trying to give people the emotion equivalent of having accepted that these things are true and important. And then the content just kind of slots into place anyway. It's kind of like there's this joke about a chicken that I heard. So there's this guy and he's paranoid that he's being persecuted by a giant chicken. And he goes to the mental asylum and after several months of work there, he gets cured and he goes back home and a couple of weeks later, he comes back to the asylum and he's white as a sheet and sweating and crying. And head psychiatrist is like, what's the, what's the problem? He's like, the chicken, the chicken. And he's like, well, you know, there's no chicken. You know, that's the, the, the chicken isn't real. And the guy says, yeah, but try telling that to the chicken. You know, that's who we're really talking to is the, is the chicken. And, and, you know, people who now believe in QAnon cannot be persuaded using lo- lo- logic, so-called or whatever. You have to do something else. You have to blow their mind, first of all. You have to just make them pay attention to something because they're so far gone into the fascist meme virus factory sort of production that they just cannot. So yeah, I think I think that's really important. And I don't think scientists are well equipped to understand the magnitude of how to convey this stuff. Do you get the sense that scientists, technologists, folks in STEM classes take your classes and come out understanding your point of view? Do you get the sense that scientists listen to and respond to what you have to say? I'm teaching a class right now called Ecological Cultural Criticism here at Rice University, and it's 25% architects and 25% humanities students and 50% scientists. And it's part of the environmental studies program, and it's also part of the English department. And so it's a very interesting mix of people. And for real, they take the class, and it really, really helps them because they sort of can understand how I talk. You know, I, I read a lot of science stuff all the time. I try to educate myself, you know, about what the where the state of play is in biology and ecology and physics and whatever. And I think I know how to talk to people like that. My whole family, on at least one side of my family, was all scientists, and they were all like, "Why didn't you go to?" Cambridge to study chemistry and I'm like because I want to go to Oxford and study literature but actually funnily enough I think I'm on the same mission still because like I was just saying I'm trying to give people the sort of science feeling you know think about it this way so there's this biologist and he's on the radio in the Texas radio a couple of years ago and he's this he's talking about this moment that for him was very moving and he's crying because this sea lion mother is loving on him in the ocean and it's like this is so beautiful and he's a bit grossed out at the same time because the sea lion mother is loving on him by throwing him dead penguins yeah and it's this funny combination of i'm willing to be surprised and maybe even grossed out and wrong and like and also the the beauty of it geologists have this like 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 beginning geology students they're holding a rock and they suddenly realize oh my god this is a billion years i'm holding in my hands a billion years and i have to account for this now because i'm a geologist and they all go through this amazing transition where they suddenly see this kind of vertigo feeling making thing seems to me like that kind of feeling is actually like So, for example, there's this poem by Coleridge, and it's called The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. And it seems to be kind of weirdly quasi-religious poem, sort of weird, crazy, psychedelic, homeless guy goes on a voyage to the Antarctic and has these strange, mystical, horrifying experiences. But actually, the net effect of that poem is to put you into the position of the kind of science-y position, right? Like where you're kind of open to being wrong and a little bit gross and disgusting and yet um, kind of amazing and wow at the same time. And that feeling is actually much more important than anything you could fill it in with, I feel. Because, for example, that's also the feeling of, if I may use that word, the feel of or the phenomenology of, if you want to use the fancy word, it's the phenomenology of symbiosis, Right. Like, so you imagine you're a single celled organism and you're kind of plopping through the ocean and suddenly, ah, did I just swallow a poison? That's the, the, that's the symbiosis feeling. Did I just poison myself? Like, is, is this relationship that I just got into going to be toxic for me again? You know, and then like a hundred million years later, no, it wasn't because that was the beginning of plants and animals because that single celled organism accidentally swallowed an anaerobic bacteria. But you can't know in advance, right? If you talk build a wall, hint, hint, and interrogate who's ever coming through that wall and know in advance who they are, if they're your friend or your enemy, that's the end of any kind of symbiotic anything. It depends upon this kind of uneasy, I'm not sure what this is, but I'm willing to be amazed by it. And that's the science feeling really. And it's also the symbiosis feeling. And it's also the feeling of what I would call the beautiful along the lines of Immanuel Kant. It's this kind of coexistence feeling, which is kind of uneasy and unstable. And who did it to who and whose fault is it? And like we don't know yet so that is the future 
you know, this feeling of, I don't know yet. I don't know, dark energy, I don't know yet what that is, right? Like like dark matter, whatever, it may, may not even be real. I don't know yet. Science has this kind of future orientation emotionally. And emotions are always more important than ideas because emotions are from are the future. Emotions are ideas that you don't know what they are yet. Like, why do you even do therapy? Because you're having a feeling that you can't put into words yet, right? And the word, like hyper object or whatever, is just the receipt that comes out of the cash register of the feeling process, right? And so like helping people to stay in their feelings and also because we don't know what this is, right? Like it's up to me, Generation X person, to help out Generation Z not to feel like they should die, basically, essentially is what I'm trying to do. And how how dare I, in a way, because I'm responsible for it and I did it to them, and I have no clue. And so, nevertheless, it's my responsibility. So it's like, on many, many levels, how to orient towards the future rather than repeating the past. And here we're talking about Kant in the sphere of the aesthetic and in the sphere of the symbiotic. But of course, words like responsibility and symbiosis, particularly if we're already talking about Kant, should bring us into the realm of Kant's other major purview, which is the ethical. What ought I to do, particularly in the sphere of the encounter with the other? We typically, I think, in the humanities in particular, have historically thought about the other in terms of another human being, somebody who belongs to the sphere of the human. This is the predicate for human rights. This is the predicate for interpersonal relationality of basic social contract theory as well. But one interesting thing in your comment is that you extend that purview to the realm of the non-human. You say that that we actually have the same kinds of, to use your word, responsibility, to use Kant's terminology, ethics or relationality to the non-human world. I think that that's a big part of an environmental approach. Would you say that a technological approach is expanding on that? Does that come into conflict with it? Is there a relationship between this kind of environmental ethics that you've just posited and a kind of technological ethics? I would love to talk about that. First of all, let's have a little chat about what technology could be because from a, from the point of view of an ant a leaf is tech right like from the point of view of a leaf a tree that the leaf is on is the tech tech is like how one entity can kind of deploy another one um, as a way of kind of creating a world right and so i want to know first before i put my great big foot in it what you're implying by this word tech well, I love this question. I like to remind my students when I teach the ethics of technology that the word technology itself comes from the Greek. The word techne actually means art or craft. It's the same word that comes from textile, which also means craft or woven thing. And that that word techne, that idea of art or craft, actually brings us back to the central focus on the act of creation itself. My students oftentimes remind me that in that kind of definition, writing is a form of technology, that human culture is a form of technology. And I think that you're absolutely right. I think that the leaf is also the technology of the plant in order to absorb things. I think that in our contemporary moment, we have grafted onto that term technology the idea that technological and entities are entities that are somehow scientifically progressive, that they are mechanical. And I think in our current moment, we specifically think of technology in the form of the digital. Those are, I think, some of the assumptions that our particular culture builds around technology, that it is a scientific achievement or advancement. Um, but I think that, as I said, the, the root word and your comment brings us back to a different form of technology. And maybe you can expand on the definition and tell us a little bit how you're thinking of it or how we should think about it. That really helps me to um, think about the next thing to say. So thank you for that, because the big picture here is that from my point of view, nothing is reducible to its tool status for another entity, right? Like just because hammers are used by human beings to hammer in nails doesn't exhaust what these things are, right? Like just because a styrofoam cup at some point is going to give me a drink of coffee for most of the, I don't know, 500 years when it's around, it's going to be doing something else. It's going to be like a landing pad for a fly on a landfill. It's going to be lots of little crumbly bits for chemicals to kind of pour over, right? It's going to be tech for the fly. It's going to be tech in a way for the chemicals. And so this notion of, it's, I think, important that ethics, right, in terms of the Kant, which implies treating things as an end in themselves, not as a means, would include this notion of tech, 
right? Like I'm not simply going to reduce the world to some kind of tech for me in order to accomplish something. That basically things always exceed that and there's always some kind of shadow side or hidden corner to a thing that cannot be appropriated, which isn't the same thing as saying that there's a kind of underlying substance that kind of keeps going no matter what you do, which is a kind of basic vanilla patriarchal substance ontology that can be very violent or it, it actually intrinsically is very violent. Let's just face facts. In general, technology, therefore, is like an extension of the way we relate to each other as as beings, you know, and so they're like reflections of or, or enactments of, of, of social relationships, right? And so part of me gets a little bit worried about if I'm hearing you right, when people say technological solution, what they might be doing there is, is talking in a kind of alien way about how we relate to each other and not putting front and center the fact that these all tech is is like how you construct your world based on the relationships you have with with, with other beings you know so you know an ant walks across the forest and and walks onto a leaf and that's a relation of the leaf there and it might get with some other ants and pick the leaf up and use it as a bridge or whatever and that's tech right and in the same way we might design powerful algorithms to help us to do stuff but it's how we treat these algorithms right like it's how do we how do we relate to them one of the algorithms that we've had running in the background for ages an algorithm is really just a recipe, right? It's just like a recipe for getting something done. And it's intrinsically based on the past, right? Like you, you take an egg, you put it in some boiling water, you wait for five minutes, that's called a boiled egg recipe. And it's based on stuff that people have done already, right? So it's it's the past, yeah. One of the algorithms that we've had running in the background for about 12,000 years is called civilization. It, stop being a nomad, store your food and plan for the next year's harvest, right? At this scale, it, it's a way of avoiding the mild global warming of the Holocene, but at this scale, it's actually creating much worse global warming, right? Wash, rinse, repeat that algorithm and you've got what's happening right now. One of the ways that went down is by creating another algorithm, right? So what in Marxism is called primitive accumulation, you know, like let's just get a huge pile of cash together with slavery and colonialism and then let's automate it. Let's make the industrial version where people have to kind of enslave themselves by pricing themselves a little bit too cheap all the time. And this is an automated system, right? This is an AI, actually. Like if Karl Marx had known the phrase adaptive AI and he'd known the phrase machine learn and the word emergent, he could have said that whole 1500 pages of Capital Volume 1 in like one cookie, fortune cookie, which is capitalism is adaptive AI that emerges out of a battery system that machine learns how to extract life from the biosphere without stopping. And the question is, do we like that, right? Do we like this Sorcerer's Apprentice Mickey Mouse brooms? Now there's a million, now there's two million, now there's a billion. Like, is that okay that we're letting that happen? Or should we hit the off switch now and, and, and do something different? We don't have to be thinking of it as this technological solution to our problems. I think I think that's the big sort of ele- invisible elephant in the room when it comes to thinking about technological solutions is that there is already a huge, gigantic one that we are participating in. But the way we participate in it is as a kind of alien force that just happens to us and there's nothing we can do about it. And what's happened recently with the COVID is that the bottom has fallen out of everybody's economy on the planet. And we've got this chance to see that we can actually get, take the controls and create a future world that's less kind of harmful. Right? Like we can be more deliberate about the decisions we make. So yeah, that what I what I hear in that question about technological solution is is that is that, right? And like the fact that I seem to remember when I lived in California, the idea that some Silicon Valley people had was that we're gonna just live on ships now outside of the American waters so that we're not subject to any laws whatsoever and we can do whatever we want, right? And that in a funny way, a company like Google, it's trying for omniscience and omnipotence and omnipresence in the same way that the kind of medieval Christian God was omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient. I mean, this is like for real, and obviously it's impossible, but the attempt is quite violent. I worry about answering a question very directly about technological solutions versus other kinds of solutions, because the question itself is coming from a place of, it's sort of like, this isn't how you're saying it, but what I associate to it would be sort of like, should we rely on the God Apollo to figure this stuff out or is it better to use 
Zen Buddhism, right? And it's like, but I don't think Apollo is real, and I don't see how it relates to Zen Buddhism. If you see what I mean, you know, it's interesting the the analogy that sometimes I talk about when I talk about Silicon Valley's vision of utopia or its moral vision is actually going back to the genre of the wild, wild west. I actually teach Westworld. Westworld posits a kind of futuristic world with AI that is not quite human and therefore the human guests in this world can do whatever they want to these non-human AIs and predictably all sorts of nefarious violent activity breaks out. I posit this as not a commentary on the future of AI, but rather as a futuristic technological world as following the norms and the ethics of the wild, wild west, which of course is where Silicon Valley is. The ideas and the vision of the wild, wild west being vigilante justice, move fast and break things, all of these kinds of manifest forms of deeply ingrained sensibilities about progress. And my next question actually is about that sensibility of progress that is deeply baked into an assumption that many have about the ethics of technology, which is that ethics relate to progress. I am not endorsing this. I am merely noticing that this is something that I hear over and over again. And I actually oftentimes discover that the framework for thinking about technology and its ethics is almost always couched in that language of progress. And progress is almost automatically equated with the nature of the good. Environmental humanities has, I think, given us reason to be a little bit more cautious about that by linking technological development envisioned as a form of progress and as the good, the industrial revolution, for example, which engineered climate change massively. The development of nuclear technology has been linked to events like the Trinity Test, which was detonated near Almagordo, New Mexico in 1945 as part of the Manhattan Project, and events that have caused, like these two, mass planetary damages in ways that we have not fully calculated. What's your take on the narrative of progress in the context of tech? For me, true progress would mean dropping the idea of progress. We've had quite a lot of this notion of progress, and I'm glad that you bring it up because, to me, the metric of progress is greater and greater efficiency. And at a certain scale, again, efficiency might be the equivalent of evil. If you're a fan of the Twin Peaks series, you see this FBI agent who's a super efficient being. You know, he does yoga and he's very slick and he's very everything. And the more efficiently he tries to solve the problem of that world, the more he implicates himself in actually creating that problem. Oil is a precious toxic resource. And so efficiency is the metric there for how to work with it. And if we imagine an ecological world in terms of greater efficiency, right? Like, oh, we'll save so much energy and it'll be so... That's going to create a very not good control society from my point of view. What we have to do instead is imagine the future in terms of pleasure. But actually, what we're trying to do is enhance pleasure, we're trying to increase our inhibition, right? We're trying to like not be violent and nasty to other life forms and ourselves, and um, therefore, we're enhancing pleasure, right? On the note of like connecting to other life forms that we were talking about about five, ten minutes ago, I would like to say at this point that for me, ending white supremacy and patriarchy are foundational to any progressive ecological politics. And I just say the word progressive there because it's used in the popular discourse. But I'm now going to say the very concept of progress is one of the things that we need to kind of get over. But actually, the world that we might enter might feel a little bit like a failure or a series of failures, because it will be based more on creativity rather than on efficiency. And when you do creative stuff, you allow things to fail, right? And you kind of know also in this world, because you're an embodied being and you know that you live in an embodied finite world, that at some level, every, every solution you have is, is sucky and you can't eliminate that flaw without further violence, you see. And so everything, every solution is flawed and there's a lot of kind of failed false starts and the future world, if it, is, if it exists, is going to seem to us who have been pretty gaslit by this point, by the idea that things should become more and more efficient, is going to seem kind of weirdly bro broken, you know, and, and kind of hesitant. That doesn't mean getting rid of computers. I got stalked a few years ago by John Zerzan, the anarcho-primitivist, who the spokesperson for the Unabomber. And he's like, you got it all wrong. You know, we really do have to regress to a pre-civilized state, right? Like, I'm just pointing out, it should be obvious, that in pre pretty much every previous society to this one, I would be executed for various different things to do with my appearance, my gender identity, the beliefs inside of me. You know, so I'm not making an argument about getting rid of computers, right? 
what this is more is kind of like how to have these wonderful things in a way that doesn't hurt ourselves and other life forms very superficially right so take the example of bitcoin you know where a lot of carbon is now being emitted to create these sixty thousand dollar a piece little nuggets of information or value right and that doesn't seem so great and so again it's kind of like tools you can use in all kinds of different ways right you could use a hammer to really hurt somebody or you could use a hammer to nail up a really beautiful picture and um tech is great i i I suffer from a disability that would kill me if i didn't have a certain tech to keep me alive at certain points of the day right so this is not about we should regress there's no reverse gear you can't kind of unknow things as well you can't kind of unknow and i think that you know this idea that there was a perfect world that we then fell from is an idea that is basically a, a within the game space of civilization itself. So John Zerzan's idea that, that we came from a perfect world and then it was imperfect is just another religious full narrative. And religion is like civilization's way of, ag- agricultural civilization's way of explaining itself to itself, version 1.0. So like going back isn't really the point. If you look around you and you see anything in your world that's not that great, it means that the past sucked in some way. And so I'm I'm definitely not talking about regressing here. But paradoxically, we might feel that the future world, at least at first, might feel a bit like jamming on the emergency brake. Like, stop the world. This has got to stop. The churning has to stop. You know, like in the first few weeks of coronavirus, and however many percent fossil fuels weren't being burned just for a minute. And then a few weeks in, because there was even lockdown in Houston at that, at that point, and the governor opened it up again, as they did many, many times. And I was waking up, it was about five in the morning, and I heard this sound. That's really hot. Is that sound? It was like the sound of rushing wind, you know, like there's a real gale outside. And then I realized slowly but surely, oh, that's the sound of traffic on I-59. And I had forgotten what that sounded like. And just for a few weeks, I was not subjected to that sound, right? And just for a few weeks, I saw a world in which driving motor cars wasn't happening or just a little tiny bit less. And so in a funny way, there's something deeply utopian about just like the possibility that we can imagine a world that's different. And although coronavirus is scary on this level, in a funny way, on this level, it's like, great. Plus, Greta Thunberg can go back to school, which is cancelled because the virus is kind of doing the job for her in a way on a certain level. It's like, thank you, coronavirus, for showing us this future possibility There's a a metaphor, actually environmental metaphor, that I heard at the beginning of the pandemic that has stayed with me. It says that it is in this moment, because I remember those first moments of the pandemic, is actually eerily beautiful, pastoral, almost in a sense. And the, the metaphor was, it is as though a great tree has fallen. And that tree, of course, being all of our kind of civilization and superstructure. And where it falls, it lands forever. And we can't stop it from falling, but we can guide its fall and we can nurture the things that come out of it as new growth. I thought that was really beautiful. You know, what an opportunity in this moment and not to negate at all the suffering and the terrible things that have come out of this, including the loss of so many lives around the globe and particularly in our own country out of political folly as much as anything else. But what a beautiful idea that we could actually create new growth out of this moment. I want to switch around a little bit and talk about the Anthropocene, because I think that we should talk a little bit about what has manifested in the old growth. The term that eco-critics and environmental scientists have given to this moment in planetary history, where human activity and behavioral changes have become the basic forces of the planet, is that term, the Anthropocene. How should we think about the Anthropocene? I'm going to go with a very strict scientific definition now from my friend Jan Zalasowicz, who's on the uh, Royal Geological Society, um, part of the Anthropocene Working Group there. And there's a very strict, very boringly, awesomely boring definition. There is a layer of human-made materials in the top level of Earth's crust. Boom. That's what Anthropocene means. It doesn't mean humans are great. It doesn't mean all humans are equally responsible for it. It doesn't mean a whole lot of things that humanists rightly like to worry about. Because really, the, the other thing is that there's it makes you think that about what an origin point is, right? So first of all, number one, the Anthropocene is actually the greatest insult to human beings ever. Because it's saying, hey, you missed a spot. It's like under Earth's crust now, and it's all over the planet, including in Siberia. There's these human-made materials. And 
And the recycling of the Earth systems that seemed to be so smooth for 10,000 years was actually a human-created cycling thing. The whole idea of nature as this nice balanced thing was an agricultural civilization artifact. And you know what happens when the tectonic plates you know, go like this. It's, you're going to have an earthquake. And when your brain waves become nice and regular, you're going to have a stroke. And in 1945, there was what they call the golden spike, when all of a sudden the cycling went ching, and all the Earth systems went off the scale. That's a product of this, right? That's a product of this wash, rinse, repeat algorithm of storing and living in these little storage silos called houses and living in a whole big silo called a city, separated from other life forms, but including cattle, which is women, moo cows and sheep, and capital, if you look up the definition in the dictionary. And uh, just doing that over and over again and then requiring fossil fuels to keep it going and blah, 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 right? The other thing about the Anthropocene is, you know, it makes you think about what is an event, right? Like, what is an event? So... For me, an event is a kind of explosion. It's it's a move. It's in movement. It's movement. It's not a dot on a Wikipedia line. Simply, are you breathing oxygen right now? Great. That means that this other event called let's call it the bacteria scene. Right. It's like the Anthropocene, but bacteria did it to themselves. Right. They pooped out all this oxygen and they created the first environmental catastrophe on the planet for them. And some of them accidentally ended up hiding in single-celled organisms and like hiding from that cataclysm, right? We're still breathing now, right? So this bacteria scene is happening now. It's an explosion of oxygen, literally, that's happening. It's still happening, right? Look around you. Everything you can see is the current state of the Big Bang, right? The biggest trauma in the universe is called the universe. And it's still happening. Like the everything you see around you is just the w- way the wavefront looks right now, okay? So it's the same with the Anthropocene. And then you can kind of say, well, it's got three origins, really. The most recent one is the creation of industry, right? And you can spookily date it like Paul Crutzen to 1784 with the patenting of the, of the steam engine there. It's actually when Marx says industrial capitalism begins with a steam engine. You know? Then there's also the kind of 1600s date where there's a lot of colonialism going on and like primitive accumulation and European powers accumulating massive piles of wealth by moving all kinds of life forms and human beings around the earth and mining. So that's the colonialism moment. And then there's this other origin point, which is the, you know, the beginning of agricultural civilization as such. And you can kind of say that and you can, all all of those can be true at the same time. So this Anthropocene concept is actually a very interesting, helpful concept to think about. The one thing I do disagree with the scientists on, and this is, you know, they've all decided that it begins in 1945, but really that's just a data spike. The golden spike, which coincides with Hiroshima and all that, in all the Earth systems data, right, like the, all the different cycles of carbon dioxide and so suddenly start to go, Pew! that's a symptom of something that's already happening. That's like saying the murder happened when the murder victim, you know, was pronounced to be dead, right? Lots of things happened before that, right? There was a bullet that went through their head. There was a plan to kill them. There was all these other events that kind of led to that, right? And that's just like event, that's just the data, right? That's just the data. So I don't agree actually with the scientists on that. I don't think that's the origin of the, the beginning of the Anthropocene there. I think you can be much more sensible about it and say it, there's three. There's the sort of beginning kind of explosion of every human being kind of mostly on the planet settling down at the start of the Holocene. Then there's the colonialism of Europe. And then there's the industrialism of the late 18th century. Yeah, this is a problem that I would describe as a narrative problem. It's something that your colleague Rob Nixon has talked about quite a bit in trying to identify what an environmental event looks like. Because unlike a car crash or like the kind of spectacular or spectacle-based forms of events that we as humans are likely to and, and conditioned to understand as events, melting of the ice caps is not what we would typically in human time identify as an event. It is something that takes place beyond the kind of human time that we're used to identifying events in and something that would more cohere with geological time or deep geological time, I think, as some uh, eco-critics have called it. It brings us to the, I think, knowledge if we look in those kinds of narratival forms of causality and in those kinds of larger, deeper senses of time, the idea that the connections between what we do and the effects that they have are much deeper and the connections are much wider than we would have initially thought if we were looking at kind of more discrete units of human time. I'm wondering about the kind of ethic that emerges when we identify this kind of interconnectedness or this deep geological time. Does this change our concept of ethics at all? 
on this kind of new large scale that we would have to look at in order to understand the kinds of causal change that you're identifying? Not quite sure how to answer that. I would like to say from the get-go that we are, as far as I'm concerned, free to make ethical, political affiliations with whoever we want without reference to some kind of description of the world. Quite a lot in the humanities, we've relied on descriptions of the world to tell us how to behave. And in a world where everything exists in the same way, you're free to decide, right? So I'm very violently opposed to this deep ecological idea, for example, that the AIDS virus is just as important as an AIDS patient. I'm going to choose to side with the AIDS patient and death to the AIDS virus as far as I'm concerned. And so the the, the world involves an awful lot more difficult, awkward, complicated political and ethical decisions all of a sudden when you include other life forms and we can barely get it right with human beings. So we're entering a period where those decisions become really fraught with all kinds of implications and funny stuff. And we're also entering a moment at which knowing what the right thing to do is is no longer completely one size fits all because we know that our actions happen on different scales. So for example, you start your car assuming it's an internal combustion engine. And statistically, that is a meaningless to the biosphere event. You didn't do anything. I did this art piece a few years ago called We Are the Asteroid, you know, and it was like the second, it was like a kind of traffic slogan thing with like the LED display. And the first sentence was, we are the asteroid. The next one was, you're not guilty. You're not guilty, right? Like we know who's guilty. They live about, they work about two miles that way. They run Exxon and Chevron. We should arrest them and put them on trial for something like war crimes. Everyone's responsible, but that's different. What you do at this scale, which is statistically meaningless, you start your car. Billions of those things are part of destroying the biosphere right now. And so you, you have to hold at least two ideas in your head. What you're doing on this scale is actually okay, and it's super not okay on this scale. And how to act as an individual and also how to act as a member of a lot of different overlapping groups. And I personally think that you can think of yourself as a member of the biosphere, and that doesn't delete being an individual or being part of a neighborhood or being part of a women's group or in a family or whatever. Fascism likes to think that the group is always more real than what's in the group, right? That's the basic fascist sort of idea, that the, the bundle, which is the Latin for the fast case, gives each little thing in the bundle the meaning. And the trouble is we have this form of holism, which says the whole is always greater than the sum of its parts. And we love to say it because it makes sound clever to ourselves but it's not true and it might be quite dangerous and we just sort of say it right and no one's ever really proved it it's just a thing that we like to say i actually believe that you know to be into ecology you have to be a holist you have to believe that there are holes right like a meadow is a hole right a, a, a habitat is a hole and these holes consist of all kinds of parts but these parts don't necessarily belong to each other in a very, very locked together way. And they can be members of other holes at the same time, right? So I can be a member of the human species. I can also be a professor at Rice University. Those things overlap, but they don't contradict, right? So basically, you have to believe in holes. And you have to believe that holes are what in logic is called heaps. In other words, like big piles of inconsistent stuff, right? Like, so I came up with this word hyperobject and a hyperobject, like something that's really too big to perceive all at once is a heap of things, yeah. Now, logic reduces the heap to nothing. It's just like, well, if you keep taking the little bits of sugar out of the pile of sugar, eventually you get down to nothing and you still can say, well, it's kind of a heap. So it's illogical to say that there are heaps. So heaps don't exist. So meadows don't exist. So you might as well build a parking lot over the meadow. That's your basic vanilla Aristotelian patriarchal logic there, right? So at least you have to believe that there are holes and you have to believe that heaps can be real. And you have to believe actually that the whole is less than the sum of its parts. I know that sounds crazy, but it's actually incredibly simple. So if something exists, it always exists in the same way as something else. That's that's the basic premise of how I like to think about how things exist. My, my ontology, which is like how things exist, is saying to me that if there's a thing called a football team, which sounds plausible, then there, there are things called football players and the football team exists in the same way as the football players. There's one team and there's so there's 11 players, there's one team, so there's more parts than whole. It's incredibly sim simple and nice idea 
And what it really means actually is that there's plenty of wiggle room for new stuff to happen. It's actually a very empowering idea. And I think that like, like we should work on some like revision of what holism could mean in the context of, of environmental ethics, actually. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And intellectually, I completely understand it. Where I struggle with it is actually on, on the personal level, because I think that this new sense of ethics that each individual action that we take part in is part of a larger collective action. And actually, in many ways, each individual decision about how to behave is, in a sense, larger than the sum of the parts, even if the sum of the parts is pretty magnificent and large in and of itself. But what this does, I think, is put us in a realm where we have to think about the potential implications of our many totally normal, at least in our cultural context in the United States, what we consider to be totally normal everyday actions and decisions in a way that we've never had to before because of how they could affect not only others, but the actual future survival of our planet. Some ethicists have pointed to the overwhelming nature of this situation as one in which the stress of each small decisions thousands of which we make every single day, now each carries vast ethical weight. One such ethicist described this as moral fatigue and called it, and I'm quoting here, the chain of causality, which has always been there, but now it has become important for us to be even more reflective about the multiple layers of complex causality and the scope of our ethical decision-making, which, according to at least this ethicist, leaves us constantly in a state of crisis where we don't know whether we can act at all, or sometimes we don't act at all. What do you think about this dimension on, on an individual level, or even personally, how does that affect the way that you go about making decisions? I love to think about these things all the time. Here's the extreme version, actually. So in the far future, the following two things will be true. As a person, as an ego, I won't be of any significance whatsoever to whoever's around, none whatsoever. On the other hand, every single little thing I do, like if I move my monitor just like an inch like that will have a massive effect on the future some of which i can't predict and that's a huge big intrinsically scary thought to have that at a certain time scale the way in which we think about action totally breaks down and the trouble is the default way we've had of thinking about it even before it was formulated um as such by people like jeremy bentham is utilitarian right like i'm doing something to benefit myself or other people or something and there's a kind of default utilitarian Utilitarianism built into Mesopotamian social space, but this utilitarianism breaks down at a certain point because the idea that there is a continuous, single, solid self that continues through time becomes completely irrelevant at a big enough timescale. And some of these ecological issues require massive timescales to think about. And so we have to very urgently rethink what doing the right thing could mean. And I think we have to sort of dislocate the idea of causing pleasure from the idea of a self, right? Like one of the traps is this notion of altruism. How can you possibly be selfish if everything's out for itself, right? And the trouble with this concept is that it is created within the game space of selfish utilitarianism. It just cannot work, right? It's sort of like what some people say about Buddhism, like how can you desire not to desire? It's a stupid paradox, right? Well, the paradox should be telling you something actually, which is that, that, that this idea of self doesn't, doesn't work. And in fact, of course, we care about other beings all the time. It's how we get around the world, right? Like I care about my toothbrush to the point where I hold it the right end to brush my teeth. Otherwise, my, my teeth won't get brushed properly, right? So I kind of go around the world attending to it, actually. I'm not imposing my will on it in such a way as we like to think. And so we have to kind of get a mo get our idea of what we're doing straight a little bit. While we're thinking about what to do, we have to think about what doing could mean. I think if you were to break an action down in a particle accelerator, you would find that it was made up of lots of little tiny quantized bits of appreciating. That's what I think would happen. You'd find out that what happens to you when you're in a band is true of what happens to you when you say you're driving, right? So when you're in a band, you're listening, right? You're listening to the music and you're listening to the other player and you're listening to your instrument and you're listening to your musical lineage. And at that moment, act and listen to become the same thing, actually. And this idea we have that there's the thing called active and there's a thing called passive and there's a thing called subject and there's a thing called object, which kind of maps on to that, right, is just patriarchal medieval stuff that we happen to be still retweeting for some weird reason. It doesn't work anymore, right? And 
really what's going on is we're kind of attending to, right? Like you're driving, right? Like if you try to drive, you're going to die very quickly. Driving implies that you're allowing the other cars to kind of suck you around. You know, if you've ever seen the video where the psychologist, David Eagleman, is trying to stack cups with the world's fastest cup stacker. And they're looking at the brainwaves there and it turned, the, 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 the boy who's the fastest cup stacker, his brain's not even functioning. He's not actually intending to do it even. And we all know that when you intend to do something, actually you've already started to do it. So this whole idea, we need to slightly change about what act even means because it's become kind of toxic to thinking about all this stuff. And I think if we restructured the idea of act in terms of attending to, as opposed to imposing our will, that would be great. Because I think free will is overrated. And I think it's kind of like, a again, it's a tweet from the Middle Ages, this idea that there's a soul that's totally free. And it's like this kind of smoke inside a thing called your body. And no matter who you are, unfortunately, we keep on kind of tweeting this out in kinds of different ways. It kind of it gets in the way. I wanted to ask another narrative question about the dimension of environmental thought. The, I think, most popular piece of environmental writing from the 20th century, certainly one of the formative ones, was Rachel Carson's Silent Spring. And starting from Rachel Carson's Silent Spring forward, the two dominant modes of environmental thinking have been written in the narrative forms of either the elegy, something that's mourning the loss of something, in other words, the loss of nature, or the apocalyptic, increasingly the apocalyptic, I think it's becoming a, a dominant strain of how we talk about the environment. A couple of weeks ago, I had the climate scientist Mark Jacobson on the podcast. And as far as climate scientists go, he is not an apocalyptic thinker. He is an optimist. And I asked him what he thought of a strand of thought among those who talk about climate change to talk about the uh, future on the planet in these kind of apocalyptic terms. I brought up the author Jonathan Franzen's notable and controversial piece in The New Yorker in 2019 titled, and I'm giving the full title here, the climate apocalypse is coming to prepare for it. We need to admit that we can't prevent it. And in that piece, he notes that, again, I'm quoting him here, the goal has been clear for 30 years, and despite earnest efforts, we've made essentially no progress toward reaching it. He concludes that, again, quote, if you care about the planet and about the people and the animals who live on it, there are two ways to think about this. You can keep on hoping that the catastrophe is preventable and feel ever more frustrated or enraged by the world's inaction. Or you can accept that disaster is coming and you can begin to rethink what it means to have hope. In that piece, he quoted the novelist Franz Kafka, who is not particularly well known for his optimism in saying, there's infinite hope, but not for us. Jacobson vehemently rejected this point of view. Who's right here? What's your take? I don't like anybody who reduces things to a binary. It's like an unskillful parent choice, right? You can have the, the tomatoes or the apples, which is it, right? You can go for a walk or you can go for, at that point, your communication to your child is broken down and you've got to present them with two choices, right? And it's a kind of a bully tactic. I don't like it. There's at least another choice, right? Above and beyond giving up or hoping, which is let's build a better world anyway, because we still, some of us be alive. And so bunny rabbits also will be alive and polar bears will be alive and bacteria will be alive. And there's mass extinction doesn't mean you should stop caring. When my cat is dying, I hope that I am holding him in my arms while he's dying. My lizard died of a stroke in the summer of last year. And I held my lizard while my lizard was dying. Okay. I didn't go, oh, there's no hope. He's dying so fucking you know that that's not the right solution at all right the solution is actually the world was always going extinct death is always happening but based on that what do we want to do again you know let's just try to build a better world there's going to be like say lovelock is right and 80 percent of human beings die scarily there's it's not all of them there's 20 percent left so they they got to do something because there's a thousands of years of this going on right so it's not about like whether to despair or whether to hope i think those two things are kind of like a fake choice as it goes and instead, I would like to think about good old Gramsci's slogan, Antonio Gramsci, the Italian communist, and he says, pessimism of the intellect, optimism of the will. Knowing that knowing stuff doesn't prevent you from doing doing things. It never did. Knowing now that you're, you know, that the world might just disappear into a cloud of entropic particles doesn't exempt you from being a nice person in the next few minutes to whoever you meet in the street. There's the kind of way in which some of this 
this thinking is about like rubbernecking the disaster from some impossible point of the future, right? And it's a very kind of normal patriarchal philosophy habit of thinking I can step outside the universe and judge it from on high. In this case, from far in the future, from this impossible place where most humans or whatever have become extinct and just be like, well, it's happening anyway, so whatever. And it's like, when, when was that ever a good idea to do? There's the kind of humanities theory class version where I can prove that I'm smarter than um, whoever's in the class by being like, you wouldn't believe how imprisoned in ideology we really are. You wouldn't believe how difficult political action really is. You wouldn't believe how paralyzed you actually are. And it's like, since when did making people feel paralyzed? count as empowering them using you know theories about race and gender and class and whatever when when was that ever a good idea right so yeah very much i would like to kind of suggest that there's no alternative but to try to build a better world and if that means seeming hopeful then fine people can look at me and go look at that hoping person holding on to that hope and they can be as cynical as they want it's fine because we were never in a position where death and extinction weren't actually happening. It's just now we know more things about the world than we did 12,000 years ago. And we know that we're responsible. And how come we're responsible? Because we can understand it. We don't have to prove for one second that we did it. In fact, we know who did it. I was pointing them to them a minute ago, right? They, they kept it dark that we were doing this to the planet for 50 years. In order to do something right, all you have to do is understand it, right? Like, so you see somebody running in the street and they're going to get hit by a car. You understand what's going to happen. So you, it's your responsibility to get them out of the way and stop the car. We don't have to say for one more second, you should feel very bad about global warming or whatever. And we shouldn't be saying for one more second that there's no chance to do anything. We shouldn't be talking in these terms. It's kind of, again, you know, retweeting this idea that there's an end. You know, the, 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 he said this word apocalypse, right? I think what I'd prefer would be the end of the end of the world as a concept. Just before coronavirus hit, I was working with the Vatican and Hollywood to make a cartoon for evangelical Christians called Apocalypse No, based on the idea that not that we want to steal their idea of apocalypse, it's a bit violent, but this fatalistic idea that, oh, it doesn't matter if the world burns because Jesus is going to come back, right, which is the Christian version of the Francis, could be tweaked a little bit. And we were thinking there's this midrash of the Quran, and it basically says, you know, well, there's a gigantic wall of flame and it's coming towards you. But that's really scary, so don't look at that. Instead, you've got this little seed in your hand and just plant that seed in some good soil and two things may happen. Number one, God will see, Allah, God will see it and will be like, oh, let's actually postpone the apocalypse because people are doing good stuff. Possibility number one. Possibility number two, the, the wall of flame keeps coming, but you did something nice anyway. When, when was that never not true? One last question, because you brought up your work creating this cartoon in Hollywood with the help of the Vatican. And this really leads me to want to know a little bit more about the relationship between academia and popular culture. You've been involved with several major artists, giants in popular culture, music, performance artist Bjork, Hans Ulrich Urbrist, the artistic director of London's Serpentine Gallery, and perhaps the most powerful figure in the contemporary art world. Those are just two of them. And we talked about the cartoon as well. How do you understand the dynamic between popular culture and academia? And, and perhaps to tie it a bit more into our topic today, how, if at all, do you understand the interplay between art, technology, eco-criticism, and ethics? There's a horrid word now in the academy where it's a pair of words, it's public facing. And it implies that normally scholars aren't facing the public, whatever that means. And sometimes they have to do things that do face the public. But everything you do, like imagine you're a humanistic scholar, everything you do is made out of words. Words are public. They just are. And so the trouble is that this idea that there should be a thing called public humanities where we make ourselves relate to the public now becomes a stick to beat poor disempowered beginning professors with. Conversely, I think that if you get to a certain point, like say you got tenure or you got promoted or whatever, you might want to sign a contract that says, I promise to share my stuff with other people. It's not about appealing to a wider audience. That's a horribly condescending metric. You've already lost if, you, if, if that's how you think. It's actually simply talking to more people and talking to more people is obviously upper level from talking to less people. And it's not really about being right anymore, right? Because a medieval institution that the university is, is based on the concept of authority 
and being right. Whereas actually being interesting sounds flimsier, but is actually much nicer because it's about bringing people in and like helping them to visualize things and, and, and like understand things without like dictating to them. I've never sought out the anything from any artist or architect or musician. They've always ever just been interested in what I do and then write to me and be like, would you like to do something? I think it would be wrong somehow the other way around. And my the, everything good in my life has come from like, following along with other people's ideas of what to do, right? So I'm not sure if I've got a, like a, an idea about it or a formula for it, but I do think that it's a responsibility of someone who's got some stability in their, in their career to share what they've figured out with more people. Otherwise, like, like why would you do it any, like anyway, right? Like I remember when I wrote my first book and like maybe five people on the planet understood it and read it and liked it or whatever. And that's cool, but I, I want to talk to loads and loads of people. I, I've got this Patreon podcast. This is a bit of an ad now. I got so upset about the election, I started a podcast, and now I just rant away about politics the same way as I would talk to my mum. Only people are donating money, and the donations are all going to the NAACP Legal Defence Fund. You can join for as little as a dollar a month, and all, everything's going to fund things like the lawsuit against the previous president and their lawyer and these two fascist organizations, you know, which is helping me not to feel like I'm dying. I think that's part of it. It's sort of like, how do I work in such a way that I don't feel like I'm dying inside and that I can help Generation Z to not feel like they're going to die? I wrote this book, the subtitle was After the End of the World, and I interviewed Generation Z for this BBC show that I was doing. And they were like, you can't say that to us. That's a horrible thing to say. And I said, actually, I'm really sorry. I didn't think when I made that title of anything about what you guys would be feeling. I was only writing it for people like me in previous generation. And now I wouldn't even write that book. I wouldn't even write the book in that same way. And I feel like now I have a responsibility to like model my feelings in public rather than like give people big ideas to be impressed by, if you see what I mean. And that's my responsibility right now. Thank you, Tim. It's been an honor. Thank you so much.